This is Ed Cashmark, the Everyday Economist, keeping my eye on the economy every day for you, with no bluster, no bias, and no bull. May 5, 2020. Several uh, economic releases today. First one was uh, international trade for March. This is overall trade. A few days ago, we had just goods trade. This is overall, all trade. And so the uh, prior month in February, the trade deficit was minus 39.8 billion. The forecast was minus 44 billion for March, and the March actual number came in at 40 minus 44.4 billion. So pretty much right on target. Like I said, it's because exports uh, fell a lot more than imports during the month. Redbook retail sales, this is again year-over-year uh, -year change in same-store sales, was down 8.1% the prior week, and uh, for this most recent week, it was down 9.3%. So that measure is getting worse. PMI Services Index, which is a measure of activity in the services industry. The prior month uh, in March was 39.8. The forecast was for 27, and the actual was 26.7 for April. Keep in mind, 50 is the dividing line between expansion and contraction. So this is 26.7. It shows we're in very deep contraction. Uh, a similar measure of the services index is the ISM non-manufacturing non index. In March, it was 52.5. <clears throat> excuse me, 52.5. In April, the forecast was 37.9, and the actual for April was 41.8. So worse than last month, but uh, better than expected. So it was a little bit of a contrast there between that index and the PMI index. And the other thing I wanted to share was that Federal Reserve of Chicago Bank President Charles Evans made a statement today. I'll just read it because it's quite short. It says, after a sharp contraction in the first half, it is reasonable to expect the U.S. economy to pick up in the second half of 2020. Uh, in a media conference call, Evans cautioned that he would have to evaluate economic conditions on a quarter-by-quarter -quarter basis. An uncertainty about the economic outlook and worries about a possible second wave of the, corona of the coronavirus or additional bankruptcies. By the end of 2021, a good unemployment rate would be 5 to 6%, Evans said, but that would involve a lot of things going right. Evans said manufacturers, small businesses, and others he has spoken to are challenged as they seek to make workplaces safer and screen employees against COVID-19. Those changes require financial resources, but unfortunately, we need to do this for some time. Different sectors will perform better than others as the recovery unfolds, he said. Travel, for example, will be nowhere near where it was at pre-crisis -cri pre levels. So that's just a quick statement from one of the Fed uh, presidents. All right, on to uh, the market today. The market was up over 400 points but uh, on hopes of states reopening their economies, their economies albeit at different uh, rates and measures. But then, right toward the end of the day, Fed Vice Chairman uh, Clarita uh, made a statement. He said that the economy risks long-term damage from the virus, and the Fed may have to do more to stim stimulate the economy. 
and that wiped out most of the gains, leaving the uh, Dow Jones at only one thirty up one only one thirty three on the day. So it wiped out seventy five percent of the gains for the day. So there's that. Now a quick uh, article on meat sh- meat shortages. Again, this is an ongoing topic. Just a few notes. Twenty uh, percent of Wendy's are out of hamburger. So if you like Wendy's, hmm, not good news for you. Costco is limiting meat sales to three items per person. Tyson says production costs are rising, partly due to shifting production and packaging from restaurants to grocery stores, but also they have to test their employees for for the virus. So that's, I'm sure, adding to their production costs as well. And cattle slaughter rates are down 30% from the prior year. So those issues continue in the meat industry. Another article, uh, I think this has actually a video, uh, just a quick one. This is from Better.com, which uh, is a mortgage lender. This is a video about the mortgage industry. He said he saw 36% increase in purchase applications in April, uh, which was in contrast to the Mortgage Bankers Association uh, that showed the actual decline in April uh, for mortgage for purchase applications. So uh, the difference, he said, was the fact that they do online applications. Um, that's kind of odd because I thought most applications were online, but uh, I guess maybe they're over the phone. But anyway, he said that's a big factor. Um, he also said people are buying properties previously seen before the virus hit. So they can remember what the property was like and just go ahead and, and file uh, an application to purchase it. But there's also a lot of companies that are doing video uh, tours of houses as well. And in, he says prices are going up due to a shortage of houses for sale. All right. Uh, now I want to show share some notes from a podcast about the coronavirus that I listened to. And I'm, there's going to be one statement in here that will blow your mind. All right, this is from a very well-known and well-respected, very well-known and well-respected epidemiologist, and I'm not going to say his name because I don't want to ruffle any feathers here. But uh, I'm kind of starting to see a pattern with uh, this guy's statements, and I understand he's an epidemiologist, so he knows way more about this than I do. I'm only an economist. But uh, you'll see what I mean here. All right. He says, so right now, only 5% of the U.S. population has been infected so far. This is from, uh, I believe this is from April 29th, so about a week old. He says, we have a long way to go before reaching herd immunity of 55 to 70%, which is what the, he says is required in terms of the infection rate for us to, to, to develop herd immunity. We will be dealing with this for some time to come. We will have to learn to live with this virus. Many different scenarios, uh, many different scenarios are out there. One of them is a, a, a one big wave, and then another one is a, p- a possibility of several smaller waves. He's very certain New York will see another terrible wave in the fall. Uh, he says how to stave off a second, a, a, a big second wave. Uh, we, we want to know what is happening with cases in communities, so that requires testing. He says, testing has to be reserved for acute clinical cases and healthcare workers. Uh, not sure why. Uh, we have to find out case growth rates in vulnerable communities like the elderly and uh, those with underlying health conditions 
and we want to see case numbers going down in these areas, obviously. Um, he said, he even actually said he's biased toward the health argument as opposed to the e economic argument. That, that, those weren't his words exactly, but that's pretty much what he said. Um, he said something like, I'm biased toward what, knowing what the virus can do or something like that. But um, after listening to a few of his podcasts, I know where he's at on things. Uh, he says, we need to start phasing back in, but also need to have a plan to phase back out when the virus rebounds. When the virus rebounds. He didn't say if, he said when. So, there's that. Uh, we need to have mental health support, too. So that's a big issue. We have to allow younger adults to go back to work, uh, primarily because they are not nearly as susceptible to uh, needing hospitalization uh, and uh, all that medical care that older patients are requiring. It says we need to bubble long-term care facilities, prisons, and f and those areas, uh, those people with physical disabilities. Uh, those are. Uh, congregate uh, areas, I guess. Uh, the first two are, and the third one, um, I'm not sure about that one. Uh, and I haven't heard anything about, well, I guess, yeah, if you have physical disabilities, then you're going to have probably more susceptible to getting sick. Uh, the world is severely challenged with lack of reagents for testing. Contact tracing is very controversial and not proven to make a difference, he said. And yet, he's constantly talking about that. Well, some people are, I guess. He's not talking about it so much. said the renewed transmission in China, even though there's elaborate program of contact tracing. He said, now listen to this. This is the statement that's going to blow your mind. He said, and I'm quoting him now, governments in other countries such as Singapore and Japan have the unusual, if not unparalleled, opportunity to tell their residents they will go into incarceration, they will go into mandatory quarantine, they will be removed from their homes, and it's just done. There is no debate or discussion. That is if they don't comply with social distancing and other measures, or if they are sick. Uh, so, let me read that again. Governments in other countries have the unusual, if not unparalleled, opportunity to tell their residents they will go into incarceration, they will go into mandatory quarantine, they will be removed from their homes, and it's just done. There is no debate or discussion. My friends, that is a frightening statement. This is from an epidemiologist. Why would he use the word opportunity? He could have said they have the unusual and unparalleled power. I mean, that would have been a much better word. But he said opportunity. Oh, my goodness. That just made me fall out of my chair. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Continuing on, how long contact tracing will, uh, or how long, how will contact tracing work in America? It won't be done by phone. How should we do contact tracing without scams? How do we do contact tracing without punishment? There's that word, or there's that uh, idea again. How do we do contact tracing without punishment? Oh, boy. Uh, 
Is this what's is this what's coming to America? Oh man. Don't uh we don't have a lot of time and we don't have 6 months. So how do we pl do we apply uh this uh these these measures? Uh these are just some questions he's kind of raising. He says, "Will public trust will the public trust contact tracing or resist it?" Um well, I can tell you there's going to be an awful lot of people who will resist it, but some people will probably comply. Um, they're resisting all, they're starting to resist more and more all these uh, lockdown measures, so what's going to happen if all of a sudden the government knocks on their door and says, we need to test you for contact tracing or whatever, and we need to gather all kinds of data on you? What are they going to say then? What are they going to do? What are the people going to do if they're, if they have no choice, if they're forced to do this. Oh, this is getting scary. Uh, it says, what happens if mandatory quarantine leads to lost wages or jobs or businesses? Yeah, that's another concern too. I mean, if, you're, if, uh, if you are told that you have been in contact with someone who has the coronavirus and the government comes along and says, you need to go into quarantine and, you know, you're going to lose your job or your business or what? Oh, boy. Uh, he says we need a national approach to contact tracing. So that's national, not state. So there again, that's the, um, the statist view that this guy seems to have. How will testing results be shared across the private sector? What about data privacy concerns, like I just said? Training is very important for contact tracers. Uh, training is very important for contact tracers. Why would, I mean, training obviously would be important. You need to know what to do. But the way he said it kind of made it sound like the training, the importance of the training, the important part of the training that he was referring to sounded to me like it was the uh, aspect of getting people to comply. Not necessarily training them how to do the tests or how to record the results, but getting them to comply. That's what it sounded like to me anyway. Uh, uh, we know the virus is always here. It's always trying to transmit. It's going to find a leak in the whatever walls we put up. When travel starts back up, the virus will transmit even wider. Flattening the curve isn't going to be done for many more months to come. Well, the curve has been flattened in quite a few states already, so uh, maybe he's only talking about New York and New Jersey and, you know, some of the states that are still having problems. I know we don't have a, we don't have a bed capacity issue in, uh, in Minnesota. I know that for a fact. Um... He says, worries about second epidemic of civil rights versus health concerns. The country is splitting. Yep, very true, very true. And, and that just corroborates my concerns about this. When he says he's worried about a second epidemic of civil rights. We already have an epidemic of civil rights versus health concerns, if you ask me. The, all the things that I'm seeing on the news, uh, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure a lot of you have seen that one video of healthcare workers standing in the streets blocking off cars as they were protesting all these lockdown measures that was just wow that was a 
stunning, stunning video. Uh, finally, he says, you will not be a red state or a blue state. You will be a COVID-colored town one day. <sighs> wow. I mean, look, we know this virus is everywhere. Every state has it. But, you know, that kind of a statement is just, that's just, uh, um, that's an awful lot of hysteria, if you ask me. Uh there are several states out there that don't have very many cases or fatalities at all. And he's basically saying, every state, you know, the heck with your politics. You will be a COVID-colored town or state one day. All right. Well, those are the notes from that, uh, that podcast. Uh, some interesting and uh, very concerning and disturbing statements from that epidemiologist. All right, now an update on the coronavirus itself. Uh, The IHME model from the University of Washington has nearly doubled their forecast for fatalities from 72,000 to 135,000 by August 4th. That's kind of the day they've always been forecasting due to the fact that states are reopening their economies. So... They're saying states are reopening their economies, so we're going to have twice as many deaths as we originally forecast. Uh, just like that, without even seeing what's, you know, these states these states have only been open for a week or less. You can't, there, there just can't even be enough data to, to, uh, to really justify that kind of a forecast. But, again, they know more than I do, and this model has been... Uh, doing better than others so uh and the other thing i wanted to say too is that if if we grow uh for the united states the uh seven day moving average of the growth rate and fatalities day over day is three percent so if we continue to grow at that rate we will hit 135,000 fatalities by memorial day weekend so uh that forecast of 135,000 is not far off at all as far as I'm concerned but at the same time um you know that forecast was there even before uh, this forecast that I that I'm putting together just based on the 7-day growth rate uh was showing pretty much the same thing even before these states started opening up so uh their model is actually kind of catching up but like I said my Simple forecast says 135,000 by Memorial Day weekend. Their model is saying 135,000, let's see, two months after that, or a little over two months after that. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. I I don't certainly care if I'm right or wrong. I don't, I wish it would just end right now, just end today. No more fatalities. But that's not going to happen because today it looks like after a couple of days of of a slowdown, uh, the fatality rate is back up again for the United States today. Um, as of right now, uh, as of right now, it's about close to two thousand one one thousand eight sixty two as of right now. But you know, in looking at the data, I found something interesting here. 
we are starting to see a pattern of fatalities peaking on Tuesdays and troughing on Sundays. Now, this pattern has held in place for one, two, three, four weeks. Four weeks. That is very interesting. Uh, why would there be more fatalities on some days than others? Is that because they are catching up on their recording of the fatalities? Um, hmm. I can't understand why there would be more fatalities during the week than on a weekend. This is not related to, you know, things that people do on the weekend versus what they do during the week. It's just people are getting the virus and dying. I don't know why there would be this pattern of up and down, uh, you know, for the last four weeks uh, for, for fatalities for the United States. That's just very interesting. It makes me um, uh, want to know more about that. Okay, and let's see. Alright, now it's on to my tip of the day for how to stay sane during unemployment. Tip number 17 is under the second commandment of learn new skills. Tip number 17 is learn Python, which is another programming language for data analysis and statistics. And Python has actually risen in popularity over the last couple of years, uh, and it's actually surpassed R, which I talked about yesterday, it's actually surpassed R in terms of usage and popularity. Companies in, in, in every industry are using Python. Uh, I have learned some Python. It's a, it, I would say, I don't know, it, I'm not, I'm not going to say it's easier to learn than R, but that's what they say anyway, <laughs> the people who, who wrote it. Uh, and and both uh, Python and R, I believe, I know R is open source. I'm pretty sure Python is open source, too. Um, the programs are both free. Uh, you can just download them on the Internet. And the really smart people, they can write their own packages and programs and add them to, to, the, to the, the platform, to the, po to the program. So you can write your own program and add it to to the uh, community uh, so that other people can use your program. It's pretty pretty interesting that way. But I had, uh, you know, it was interesting learning Python. So, uh, like I said, many companies are requiring it now. So, and even in the economics world, R and Python are being used more and more. SAS has been used for quite a while, but now R and Python are being used too. So, tip number 17, learn Python. That's all I have for today. Please subscribe if you like what you're here, spread the word, and listen to previous episodes for previous tips if you would like. And uh, upcoming tomorrow, we'll be talking about mortgage applications and ADP employment numbers, which is kind of a precursor to the number that comes out on Friday uh, that everyone will be looking at. And uh, if I have time, I will share notes from another podcast uh, from the same epidemiologist I shared from today. This is Ed Cashmark, the Everyday Economist. Stay safe, stay sane, thanks for listening, and have a good rest of your day.